be great if you can keep your Bible open. Uh, let us pray uh, that God will teach us from his word this morning. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you uh, that we can gather together uh, as your people, uh, united because of your grace to us. We thank you for your word. Uh, that you continue to speak to us uh, and convict us of the things that we need to hear so that we might be more like you. And so, Lord, I pray that you are with me now. I pray that you are with each of us, uh, that your Holy Spirit will teach us what we need to hear. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a quick straw poll. As a general theme, do you tend to be more of a glass-half-full person or a glass-half-empty person. So if you're a half-full person, then you tend to assume the best and focus on what's working. If you're a glass-half-empty person, then you tend to assume the worst and focus on what isn't working. So, a little bit of a confession time. We won't hold you to this for life or think anything worse of you. Uh, Who tends to be more of a glass half full person. Okay, that's good to see. Who tends to be more of a glass half empty person? Okay, (laughs) hands down. Who would prefer not to answer the question, Uh, which means you're probably more in the glass half empty category. Uh, uh, Personally, I am a glass half empty empty sort of person. Uh, In my defence a little bit to try to retrieve something, uh, I I do tend to be a little more critical of myself, I hope, uh, than of others, Uh, but perhaps even that is being a little bit glass half full. (laughs) I think glass half empty thinking, though, uh, can become particularly tempting when we become very familiar with our space. Uh, So I think we've all heard the expression, perhaps, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And what that means is we get to a point sometimes where we're so familiar with a, a space and we're so used to the good things that we just don't see them anymore. And so we just presume that that's the way it should be and instead we focus on the things that frustrate us. And with that can come all sorts of conflict, uh, both externally in terms of our relationships, but also internally about how we see ourselves and how we see others. And so today, as we look at this passage, conflict is going to be a big theme. But as we uh, kick off, uh, for those who uh, would appreciate a bit of a refresher or if you've missed what came before, uh, let me give you the short version of the last couple of weeks. Uh, So we are saved by grace uh, through what Jesus did on the cross and there's nothing we can add to that. So it's grace alone, not works. And as a result of that grace, uh, we have received a prize and that prize is waiting for us. So this prize, we did not earn it, we do not deserve it And we cannot lose it. It's waiting for us in heaven and that motivates us to be intentional and purposeful now as we seek to glorify God. And so over the last couple of weeks, I think we can sum it up with uh, some words from uh, verse 14 in the chapter before where it said, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 
And if you're not sure what pressing on looks like, then Paul then goes on to say, well, look at me and look at what other mature Christians are like and follow their example. And don't follow the example of the world around us because the world around us, all they think about is earthly things and not heavenly things. And all of that background is going to be important as we come to look at what Paul has to say next. You know, what does this pressing on look like in practice? What does it look like in real life? And so we're going from the principle of follow my example uh, to some very clear implications uh, for the Christian life. So as we go through this passage today, I need you to be a little bit discerning of what you hear. So as we look at the passage, uh, listen to that primarily. As I talk about implications, I want you to weigh them up and decide whether they are true. Uh, because uh, the passage is what's speaking, but I'm going to speak a little bit broader and say, this is what I think it means for us. Uh, But you've got to weigh that up and decide whether that is godly wisdom. And so as we look at this passage, I'm going to look at it under three headings. We're going to press on with the same mind, pressing on with with God's help, and pressing on with right thinking. That's where we're going to go in our passage together. So verse 1 sort of serves as a transition from what Paul has said generally to what he wants to now say specifically. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I don't think anyone likes to feel uh, challenged or rebuked. I mean, put it in whatever language you want, you know, constructive feedback, critical reflection, growth opportunity, that's a personal favourite. But any which way you describe it, we still feel criticised and that can still feel hurtful. Uh, But we're certainly far more receptive to listening to hard words when they're coming from someone who we know and trust. And and that's Paul and his relationship with the Philippian church. So he wants to say to these guys, I love you guys. And it grieves me to see the conflict that's going on within the Christian community. And in particular, between these two women. So verse 2, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So now this is a public letter written to the Philippian church. So to pick out two individual people means that the issue must be pretty significant and we can presume that they had significant roles in the church. So their relationship and how they're engaging with each other is actually impacting the whole community together. Uh, But we don't know the specific issue. Uh, Paul doesn't then go on to tell us, as the readers, what's going on. Uh, So it might have been uh, an issue to do with what what was being taught together. And, And Paul alludes to that earlier when he says, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So perhaps that's what it is. It's a theological issue. Uh, It might have been an issue of gospel priorities. Uh, Perhaps one of the women uh, feels that we should be spending or they should be spending more time uh, loving and supporting uh, the widows and the poor in their community. 
Uh, perhaps the other person feels we should be spending more time sharing the gospel with our community, and that's created a point of tension. Uh, or perhaps it's more personal. Uh, to pick up the language of uh, chapter 2, they feel the other person has acted in a way that's less about humility and serving and more about selfish ambition and vain conceit. But whatever the issue is, Paul wants them to be of the same mind. So same-mindedness is not just simply agreeing about everything. So it's not necessarily agreeing about whether uh, we prioritise the poor and the widow or evangelism or something like that. First and foremost, it's about a gospel-mindedness. So recognising that we are saved by grace, that we are united by Christ. It's a desire for personal godliness. It's a desire to love other people. You get that same-mindedness, and out of that, we can deal with the particulars of the issues. And our attitude should be the same as that of Christ, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So how we work things out is just as important as the outcome we achieve. You know, if we bully and gossip our way to a good outcome, uh, then we well might have won the battle, uh, but we've lost the war. It's great when we agree. Uh, That is a great sign of unity. But even more significant, our unity is best seen in how we deal with disagreeing. How we respond when we actually have different views together and therefore have to show grace and generosity. And that takes a real wisdom, doesn't it? You know, I'm thankful for the way that we deal with issues as a church. Uh, I'm certainly very thankful for the way people approach me when I frustrate them. Some people have lots of practice and opportunity. (laughs) But it is a testament to God's grace to us, isn't it? Uh, that the way we approach things uh, works when we try to approach them with a gospel-centred focus. And when it comes to potential conflict, then our default position does need to be glass half full, Uh, which isn't saying that we put our head in the sand and simply ignore problems, but we do need to start with a generous attitude and a generous spirit towards other people. Uh, When we start there, then we will seek peace and we'll seek to avoid conflict. And we'll tend to do more listening and we'll tend to do less talking and we'll tend to sow less seeds of discontent. So we do need to be willing to speak firm words when firm words are required. And we need to speak gentle words when gentle words are required. And we need to know the, have the wisdom to know what is most appropriate in any given situation. And to get back to our passage, Paul doesn't just plead with Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind. He also encourages his true companion to help them. So verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. We don't know who the true companion is, Uh, Most likely he was uh, a travelling companion of Paul and not just a native of Philippi. 
But Paul wants this true companion, this person, to help these two women navigate this conflict, uh, to mediate between them. And that happens sometimes, doesn't it? You know, sometimes in a conflict, if you can work it out together, that's brilliant. If you've got an issue with someone, go and talk to them. Uh, but sometimes we get to a point where that just doesn't get the outcome we need, where it doesn't actually bring the reconciliation we're looking for. And so we do need to have someone else get involved, someone who's willing to mediate, someone who is godly and impartial, uh, and someone who will desire the outcome more than anything else to be godliness. Uh, so that means we've got to put aside our, perhaps our personal view of the issue, uh, perhaps our personal view of the people involved, and simply focus on what does godliness look like in this situation? How do we get these two people working together in a way that reflects our gospel unity? And at this point, as we talk about conflict, is, you know, we've got to a point in this passage where it just seems a bit bleak, doesn't it? If you're in the half-glass-empty you know, category, you've, I've just pushed you down a bit further. Uh, but then Paul pauses, doesn't he? So we've talked about this conflict... Uh, And then he pauses in his argument. And what does he say, verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So after all these negative things that he's had to talk about as he's dealing with this conflict, as he encourages them to be united, he doesn't lose perspective of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, walk along the top of a fence or or across a a log, Uh, uh, but the golden rule is look up. So don't look at your feet. Uh, don't, don't look at the log right in front of you. Look up and your feet will look after themselves. For generally, it, it works until you lose your balance. Uh, but you get the principle, right? Uh, sometimes we can go, get so fixated on what's in front of us that we lose a sense of perspective. Uh, for us as Christians... We need to keep our perspective on the Lord. We need to keep our perspective rejoicing in the Lord, uh, which isn't just simply a praise thing. Let's praise God. But it talks to where we locate our sense of identity and hope and security. Uh, And when we rejoice in the Lord, that gives us perspective for everything else. And in particular, up to this point, we've been talking about conflict. But he then moves on to talk about What does rejoicing in the Lord look like in the context of anxiety? So here he talks about, in verses 5 and 6, gentleness and prayerfulness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. So how do we rejoice? Well, we start by being gentle. Uh, And gentle isn't simply about uh, engaging people in in a way where we avoid conflict or we don't stand up for ourselves. It's an unassumed sort of strength. Uh, It's a comfort in who we are before God and therefore who we are before other people. And it allows us to put other people's needs before ourselves. But it also allows us to persuade with the truth and with God's word rather than with verbal or physical brute force. Because that's what we tend to do when we get defensive, isn't it? We try to push our way through. And as much as we hate to admit it, we do get anxious about life, don't we? 
you know, this particular section has moved on from talking about conflict, but we do get anxious about conflict. Uh, we do get anxious about how this is going to impact our relationship or what we're going to say next time we see that person. Or perhaps more broadly, we get anxious about our family. We get anxious about the decisions that our family members are making. We get anxious about our work. We get anxious about our health. And then we hit rock bottom and we get anxious about being anxious. (laughs) And so what's the solution? What does Paul say to these Christians? Verse 6, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we pray with thanksgiving because we know it's just as much about what God has already done as it is about what he will do. So if I'm thankful that I'm saved by grace, then that will rebuke my pride and I'll look at the world around me with compassion rather than this self-righteous moral outrage. But it also frees me from the anxiety of guilt Because some of the anxiety I experience will be as a consequence of my sin. Uh, Sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. But when I recognise my sin, when I repent, then with that comes a freedom. Uh, That sin can no longer be held over me. Because God has freed me from it. And our response is thanksgiving. And if I'm thankful that I am loved by God, and if I'm comfortable about who I am before God, then that will reorder how I engage with other people. I don't need to push my way around to earn someone else's respect or to establish my value. I don't need to put other people down to lift myself up. Uh, But equally, I don't always need to say yes because my identity isn't tied up in simply me being liked by others. My identity is in Christ and what he has done for me. So we pray that God might guard our heart and our mind and that we will respond with grace and godliness. And the result is peace. So verse 7, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, How do we describe something that is beyond all understanding is a little difficult. Uh, But it does start with peace, knowing that our relationship with God is right. Uh, It starts with knowing that despite everything that's going on, uh, God is actually sovereign, uh, that he is in control, and therefore all we can do is what is within the limits of our power. And if we have sought to be godly, if we've sought to honour God, we've sought to honour the other person, uh, then there is nothing more we can do. Uh, That is the limits of who we are. So in the context of peace, it doesn't actually mean the absence of conflict. The answer to this prayer isn't that God will remove all these negative things from around us. What he says is, He will guard our hearts and minds. It means peace as we live surrounded by conflict. Uh, It gives us peace as we seek to resolve conflict. And even at times, it's peace when we cause conflict and need to repent. And then finally, our, our next point, third point, 
pressing on with right thinking. Finally, Paul concludes this section by encouraging the Philippian Christians to keep their eyes focused on filling their minds with godly things rather than the garbage of this world. So verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So we pray that God will protect our minds, uh, but we also want to fill our minds with good things. Uh, I remember as a kid hearing the expression, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, and, And you get the idea that what you fill your mind with is what then tends to Uh, shape and mould your attitudes and your behaviours. And so we can either fill our minds with constructive things and godly things that build us up, uh, or we can fill our minds with garbage. Uh, Sometimes the garbage is so clear and obvious that you can't miss it. Uh, There's plenty of that in our world, and actually that stuff's reasonably easy to dodge and avoid because it's so clear and obvious. Um, But often the garbage is more subtle and more subversive. You know, it's woven into the attitudes and the values of our TV shows. Uh, It's woven into our music. It's woven into what we spend our time with, you know, on Instagram or or Facebook or any of those. Which means uh, we need to be discerning, don't we? You know, we can't simply isolate ourselves from the world, uh, and nor should we. Uh, If we isolate ourselves from the world, then how do we possibly be salt and light? So we can't do that, but we do need to be discerning in the world and we do need to be honest about ourselves. Uh, So what is uh, not a temptation for one person becomes incredibly tempting for another. And if that's us, then we need to avoid it. Uh, But we need to look at the world around us and say, what's the message here? Uh, What's the message in this music? What's the message in this show? And how does that impact me? Is this going to be helpful or is this going to be a hindrance? And if it's a hindrance, then we need to say, well, how do I get rid of this? But if the negative is garbage in, garbage out, then let's you know, avoid the rubbish. That's great. But this passage is actually put in the positive. How do we fill our mind with good things? How do we fill our mind with godly things? And I think part of that starts with being able to identify what God calls good and godly. You know, what does it mean to be true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? And to understand those things, we we need to spend time in God's word. That's how God primarily speaks to us. He convicts us by his spirit, but he speaks through his word. Uh, So we need to spend time in God's word. Uh, And there's a joy as we read God's word and we discover things about who God is or we discover things about ourselves. Uh, Sometimes it's less about discovering new things and it's about rediscovering old things, uh, things that we've forgotten or things that we've neglected or or a word that's just particularly timely in where we are this week and today. Uh, That's the joy of God's word. Uh, and reading the Bible is a little bit like a meal. You know, sometimes uh, it will be spectacular. Uh, you'll read it and just be in awe. Sometimes it's a bit like eating bran. Uh, you, you read it, you sit down with your quiet time, you've got your coffee, 
you're ready for a profound moment, and you read it and you go, oh, it's good and all, but, you know, it, I, I, I'm just not bouncing out of my seat. You know, it's, it's more the brand style than, you know, three-course meal. But whatever it is, it's still nutritious. Uh, so sometimes it's not going to send us through the roof. But God is feeding us, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. But it's always helping us grow. Secondly, uh, we need to spend time learning from one another. Uh, and this passage takes great pleasure in focusing on, uh, you know, follow my example and follow the example of other godly people. And so that's what we do when we gather together each week. This is not simply an obligation that we have to fulfill in life. Uh, this is about sharing life together. It's about hearing each other's stories and being encouraged together. And it's about loving our kids And it's about our connect groups midweek. You know, you constantly hear us talk about uh, encouraging people to get into smaller group, groups during the week. Uh, it's hard to get to know 150 people in a room, isn't it? Uh, but we can get to know really well 10 or so. And so it's great to know everyone a bit, and it's great to know a few people a lot. Uh, and so can I really encourage you, uh, if you are not in a connect group, Christian or not a Christian, uh, get to know a smaller group of people. Uh, because hopefully uh, you'll be inspired by them as they share the the joys and the challenges and the successes and the failures. Uh, But hopefully it will also give you an opportunity to inspire others. Uh, And we want to be godly examples to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we do that, then God's peace will be with us. As we seek to honour God... Uh, we experience God's blessing. And that's not, you know, there's nothing particularly surprising about that. When we live the way God calls us to live, when we desire unity, when we work together humbly, then God blesses that. Things work better when we are obedient to God. And as a church, we will grow together more and we will be a brighter light on the hill in the world around us. Uh, that's who we want to be. That, that's what Paul wants for the Philippian church. Not just that each of us will grow in our personal love for Christ, but that we will grow together. Uh, there are plenty of reasons to see the world as half empty. You know, as you look around life, even as you look around our church life together, uh, there are always going to be issues. People will always disappoint. Sometimes you will disappoint. But... In Christ, we have something better. And so we don't ignore the problems, but we focus on the, thing, the good things that God has put before us. And so we seek to be of the same mind in godliness, the same gospel-mindedness. We pray with thanksgiving and we fill our minds with the things that will help us honour God and glorify him more. And all of that comes out of rejoicing in the Lord. And so in the words of Paul, one more time, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Amen.